0: Hello and welcome to Rituals of Our Mothers. I'm your host, Amy Jones, and this is episode two of season one. I am so excited about sharing my first interview with my very first guest, Sasha Ryder. Sasha was born in South Korea, grew up in England with her adoptive parents, and currently lives in the USA. I first met Sasha on a dog walk with one of my neighbors and I was instantly drawn to her energy and her affection. She is a magnanimous individual and I am so excited to share her beautiful and triumphant story. Thank you so much for taking this time to bear witness to Sasha's story. And I thank you so much for being a part of Rituals of Our Mothers. you so much first and foremost for taking the time out of your day to be interviewed this is an absolute honor and because I I do know you a bit and a bit of your story I feel like this is really an honor to to have this time with you and to hear more of your story and to get to know you better so that for me is actually super exciting so I wanted to thank you for that Sasha and um and then we can get started. <laughs>
1: okay, hey, it's my pleasure.
0: When, um, when you heard about my project, about rituals of our mothers, like what was your initial thought in regards to it? And then, of course, in regards to your mother.
1: I liked the focus because it's a positive one. Mm-hmm. Many of us come from extremely difficult relationships where we could talk for days, months, years, about everything that wasn't great. So I really appreciate the fact that you're focusing on the part that was good.
0: Oh yes, thank you. Actually, it's it's really important to hear that because when I recorded my, uh, my episode where I just basically share, you know, how this project came to be, um, you can't, I feel like you cannot see the fruits of the labor without seeing the labor also and so when I was sharing my story there's a lot of pain there and I I, you know I I really sort of not necessarily tiptoed around it but it was it was really um, I had to keep returning to the fact that that wasn't the aspect that I was trying to relay of the project it's you know this pain and this grief and this struggle is actually what led me to this beautiful place and this absolute desire to work on the healing within the relationship with my mother and, um, and so thank you for saying that because I've, I've actually spoken to a lot of women that said, you know, this is really hard for me. I don't want to talk about my mother or I have nothing good to say about her or I'm not in a place where I feel like I can access this. And, you know, my response has been like, that's the point, actually, because it is a healing project. And we do want to talk about the difficult stuff to get to, you know, that, that goodness, because that's a part of the journey, wouldn't you say?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, I believe that forgiveness is an organic process. Mm -hmm. I don't believe it's something that we can do. I believe that it's something that occurs naturally through seeing things with clarity. And that's a long journey and it involves many feelings but at the end of it, at a certain point, when enough of the pain and enough of the truth has been brought to light, forgiveness is something that happens all on its own.
0: Mm. Absolutely, I think I had shared with uh, shared this with you at another time that um, that healing is happens in its own divine timing and we don't get to decide when that is and so it is a very organic process and um it's you know it, it is that divine intervention and that sort of place where one day we wake up and we go oh that's different that feels different today
1: and the second piece is that an infant needs love in the same way as they need food and shelter because it's a survival strategy. The infant knows somatically that without the protection of the parental figure, they are in physical threat, that their lives are in danger. Mm -hmm. So the love is equally important it's as vital as the food and the roof over the head because it's the love that ensures those other things and so as if we take it out of intellect and we come down into the body and on a somatic level all animals all creatures on this planet everything on this planet is hardwired to survive So preserving the loving relationship with the parental figure is a survival strategy. It's a need, not a want. Mm. And the individual will then do anything that they have to do or that they feel they have to do in order to maintain that positive, loving relationship. And if that involves... You know, compartmentalization, denial, it doesn't matter what it is. We'll do anything. Right. We'll do everything. Yeah.
0: To survive.
1: To survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the twist in my tale, to make it perhaps a little more clear, my mother was my adoptive mother. So I was adopted at around 10 months of age. I don't know exactly. Um, And there was a unique flavor to our relationship based on the fact that I was not her blood. She didn't carry me in her body. I wasn't the result of her physical relationship with my father. I wasn't created by her. I was acquired. And that's a completely different thing.
0: Right. Right. And was that something that she sort of reminded you of? Or was that an unspoken thing? Was that ever a conversation or a feeling even? Like, did she make you feel that way, acquired and not created?
1: I believe that my experience was ubiquitous. Adopted children feel that they must earn love we don't feel that it is our right. Uh, Because adoptive parents usually get to the place of adoption as the result of a failure because they were not able to have a child of their own. And there's massive grief in that for them. uh And then an adoptive child has lost their parents, the biological parents. So there's massive grief for the adoptee. Right. So here we have a family dynamic where two people were unable to conceive the child they wanted. Adoption was not their first choice. Meantime, there's an infant who has lost their parents. Adoption was not the first choice for the infant either. So there is a huge amount of grief on both sides that generally is unspoken. The child doesn't have the language to speak it. Right. And the adults don't have the tools to talk about it. So it's complicated.
0: And yet it sits in the room every day. Of course. Of every day.
1: It's the elephant in the room. I knew right. intuitively. It was an unspoken rule in my home that I could not talk about my adoption because it would upset my parents, particularly my mother. Mm -hmm. Um, She was not a mentally stable woman. And in her own delusional way, she refused to recognize my ethnicity. So her attitude was I'm British. Your father is British, you have a British passport, you are our child, you are British too.
0: And where did they adopt you from?
1: In South Korea, in Seoul.
0: And so there was the other elephant in the room, was, was the difference in ethnicity? Yes. Mm-hmm. And were you treated with that difference? Were, were you treated differently um, by your mother because of that, would you say? I mean, and in regards to how you saw the British children, for example, that were born and raised there um, by British parents, did you notice a difference in how you were treated by her?
1: I wouldn't say there was a difference in how my mother treated me, no. Mm -hmm. Um, our ideas about race are evolving very quickly Mm -hmm. and there are a lot of things that have good intentions but turn out quite negatively (laughs) (laughs) so for example for a long time the flavor of the month the concept was that people should be colorblind that that would be a good thing Mm. so my mother treated me as if she was colorblind. She treated me as if I was a white child because she thought she was doing the best thing. That's all she right. knew how to do. But the truth is, that was a way of not seeing me.
0: And that is truly what a soul wants. To yes. be seen and to be heard.
1: Everything on this planet wants to be seen. Because in a certain way, being seen is the same as being loved, huh? Yes, absolutely. So, no, my mother refused to recognize my ethnicity. Everybody else in our community obviously could see it very clearly. (laughs) Right, right. Um, And I think in her mind, my mother actually believed that I was just another white person. Mm. Um. At the time she was dying, we had a next-door neighbor who, interestingly, was a psychologist. Mm -hmm. She had never met me, but she had heard my mother speak of me. And she said when we met, Oh, my goodness, I knew that your mother had a daughter, but I had no idea that you were Korean. She never mentioned that. She never said you were adopted and that you were of a different race. And in the way that she spoke of you, the mental image she transmitted, in my mind's eye, I saw a young woman who was blonde, and I laughed with her and said yes, because in my mother's mind eye, that's what she was seeing.
0: Mm. Wow. And what what was the? Neighbor's response to that. I mean, what? Being a psychologist, what was her? Did she have any feedback? I'm so curious.
1: We just laughed.
0: Oh, right. <laughs> I think what that's the to best. Say?
1: We just laughed <laughs> <laughs> because there's so much to unpack um, there. <laughs> and I mean, again, yeah. I believe that my mother did the best she could. Right. And. It was too complicated for her. The race question was way too complicated for her to be able to cope with. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So she did what she could, which was to say, this is my daughter. I love her. I'm going to protect that love. Even if it means being completely delusional and pretending to myself that she's a white person.
0: And so given this, because, you know, when we, when one rather does family constellation work, they say, you know, if you're going to point the finger back or point the finger at, you have to point back seven generations. And so what, if anything, do you know of your mother's mother? Like what was her, relationship with her mother do you know and did you ever meet your your grandmother on your mother's side
1: so I did meet my grandmother on my mother's side and it was just a hugely dysfunctional lineage Mm. there were many things I did not find out until after my mother had died and there were many things I hadn't even thought about in the way that as kids often we don't you know, there are so many questions we don't ask, um, particularly if there is a felt sense that a certain subject is a taboo.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I was an only child. My mother was an only child. My mother was an exceptionally beautiful child. And she looked like her mum, And I realized at the time that my mother was dying that she had never spoken of her grandmother. And I thought, gosh, that's odd. I'd never really thought about it before. Mm -hmm. And I realized that my mother had never known her grandmother. I had not been aware that there was an aunt. Wow. So when I dug into things, what I realized was that my mother's mother had been cut off from her family when she got married. And that she had no contact with them for the rest of their lives. Wow. And I don't know the details of that story, but I know that that's what happened.
0: Wow. That feels so isolating, just as someone listening. Like what an isolating experience for everyone especially your mother. And then how could she not reflect that onto you? Just feel so lonely. Hmm.
1: I think that you have to see things within the context of the time. So right. my parents were the war generation during the time between the first and the second world war, mm-hmm. the whole of Europe went through so much horror. Right. There was so much loss. So given that context, Every family had lost somebody. It was not unusual. It was the norm. So to be in a situation where, you know, for my mom, the fact that she never met her grandma or her aunt, it would have been unusual based on the fact that they were still alive. But it wouldn't mm-hmm. have been unusual based on the fact that so many people died during that time.
0: Right. Because that's something that is it, it's so important to remember is that our parents are, our grandparents are you know, products of their time also. So it isn't just
1: Absolutely.
0: the, you know, the feeling of the emotional, right? It's also the, their circumstances. And yes. And so that also plays into who they became for their survival as well. And,
1: I think we can't understand anything without context.
0: Right. And often
1: it gets referred to now as biopsychosocial. Mm-hmm. So, to understand the wholeness of an individual, you have to have an understanding of those three things their biology, their psychology, and the social cultural environment in which they have lived their lives.
0: Mm-hmm. So, we get an opportunity. To practice compassion and empathy and understanding through all of this at the same time <laughs> while we get to sort of unravel our trauma and our grief and our heartache we also get to go right and i can also in the same breath practice compassion and empathy for their experiences and i mean i've i've never experienced war in that capacity how how do i know what i would have been like and so i think it's it's important i mean my grandmother for example my grandmother was my primary caregiver for the first seven years of my life and she was one of five children that was given up you know right right around the depression given up for adoption right and um I can't imagine the grief and the um, abandonment that was felt between all those children. And so I see that, I I, I witnessed that lack, if you will, of bonding that she had with my mother. You know, that fear of the bond, I would liken it to you know, let me not become so close because what if fill in the blank? What if I have to give up this child or lose this child? Because my grandmother had also lost a daughter uh, when she was, you know, the daughter was 19 when she died. And so my grandmother, I think, had this, you know, had a lot around abandonment. And so I, I see my mother and I see, this sort of detachment in her love for her children. There's this like fierce love, but this inability to truly bond. And I go, oh right, I, I see. Where, I can see where that came from, and it was a survival mechanism on my grandmother's part that then spilled out over into my mother, and then spilled out over into. I'll just speak for myself, I won't speak for my siblings, but none to me, this, my fear of attachment and commitment. And, and that sort of brings me because I wanted to ask you when I'm hearing your story, and it's just, just an incredible story. One of the things that came to mind was through all of this, and in particular, when you ran away from home, was there any kind of grief if that's the right word or curiosity or whatever word you can use to describe it around your biological mother and what what was sort of your journey with her throughout this trauma with your adopted mother
1: so the worst thing that can happen to a child is the loss of their mother in the same way as the worst thing that can happen to a mother is the loss of their child. I have never known a time or I knew a time for a brief period as a tiny infant when I was with my biological mom, but I was in an orphanage by the time I was about eight months old. And I don't know before that when I was separated from my birth mother. So, To all intents and purposes, we can say, I've known the grief of having lost my mother all my life. I've not really known much else. That's been the lens through which I've experienced myself and my life. And I always knew that my birth mother was dead. So in that way, it was simpler for me than it is for many other adoptees, Mm -hmm. because there was never a part of me that thought I could find her. For many adoptees, it is far more difficult and far more complicated because hope is a complicated thing. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I didn't have hope. I knew she was dead. I always knew she was dead. Um, And later in my adult life, I found out why I knew she was dead because the memory of her death came back to me.
0: And how how was that to process and... I mean what if you'd like to share what was that memory
1: I saw her murdered
0: oh wow and do you do you have any recollection of the person with whom it was with or by rather is that no
1: because at that stage in child development one does not perceive the world that way mhm um the experience of a small infant is so different to an adult experience. So it's not possible for an infant mind or an infant awareness to communicate in adult language. Right. There's still at that stage very little, there isn't really separation between self and other inside, outside. Right. Yeah. Um, So... I received the memory, um, you know, in some traditions, one might refer to it as soul retrieval, Mm -hmm. that the part of me that knew that had kept it safe and held it private Mm -hmm. because it was more than my psyche could sustain knowing. It would have been shattering. So that part of me was compartmentalized, quarantined, for the safety of the whole. Right. And at a certain stage, I was ready, evidently, because it's what happened, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. At a certain point, I was ready to receive that memory back. Right. Um, And it was a lot. It still is a lot. And to speak about it in simple terms, trauma does certain things and it's a, physical experience so I spent many years shaking uncontrollably and that was part of my body processing that memory
0: right yes and the retrieval I mean that I think when again in certain belief systems when we're experiencing trauma we fragment and that reclamation of the self is huge to be able to invite that back in and reclaim it as a part of your story and as a part of who you are. Clearly, it sounds like the body was ready to move through that trauma and that shock because it moved with you in the, in the shaking.
1: Yes. And,
0: um, and really integrating. I think a part of that is integrating the experience. And I'm recalling when I was studying... Uh, studying um, trauma and trauma recovery. And we spoke about in class, like in an animal, for example, if a polar bear is being chased for, you know, if someone is hovering above in a helicopter with a gun, that polar bear is running and running and running to escape, to survive. And say, for example, the person shot them to tranquilize them, to tag them and track them. For example, if it was a scientist. As soon as that polar bear wakes up, its immediate response is to run again to cover and to safety, to clear that adrenaline and that trauma out of its system. So it can come back to homeostasis. And that's how animals do it. But humans... That's also how
1: we do it. I mean, if one speaks about trauma just somatically, the energy Mm -hmm. must move, right? Right. And this is why many of us get stuck with unresolved trauma, mm-hmm. because the energy was not allowed to move for exactly. whatever reason. Yes,
0: Exactly. And that's um, sort of my... Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So I'm a huge fan of Peter Levine's work.
0: Me too. Yes. <laughs> I am as well. And that's sort of... So going back to your story, you know, as an infant, you wouldn't have been able... Even as adults, you know, if we're mugged, for example, or um, attacked in some way, we get we get that emotional component, and we shut down and yes. we hold it, or we hide it. And so, again, going back to the beginning of our conversation, like when healing, how healing has—it's this divine timing. The right there is the right place and a right time to heal, and. So it sounds to me that that arrived, that memory arrived at the right time and the right place to move through it and just to begin the healing process of that. And that's remarkable. I just think it's, you know, what's the, the Course in Miracles states the only reason this world exists is for our healing. And I think that that's, that's so important to remember when we're doing the work especially when it gets hard or especially when it feels overwhelming. It's like, right, but I'm here to do this. And again, that's a belief system. Of course, whatever, you know, whatever anyone's belief system is, this is just an idea and an option. And, um, wow, Sasha, this is (laughs) wow. That's really what I'm saying because it just feels it's, you have a a phenomenal story, and thank you again for sharing, and I want to, I wanted to come back to, in her physical form, and you speak to how now that your adopted mother is no longer in her physical form, and there's a lot of healing, would you say that you feel that also with your biological mother, or have you ever experienced that, you know, that accessibility with her, or has it has she remained sort of mysterious?
1: My birth mother has, had been hiding in plain sight for much mm-hmm. of my life. And I say that because, again, um, consciousness can only hold what it can hold.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So in order to be conscious of certain things, we have to have a container that is strong enough to be able to withstand it. And whether you want to call that your consciousness or your psyche or whatever, it doesn't matter, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, there were many things that I didn't think about because I couldn't. It would have been overwhelming for me. And then over time, some healing happened and I got to a stage where I knew In my body, I knew that some of the questions I had had my whole life were literally hiding in plain sight. Mm -hmm. Every adoptive child will say, I wish I knew what my mother looked like. I don't have a photo and I can't remember. I know exactly what my birth mother looked like. She looked like me. I see her face every day in the mirror. I see what she would have looked like if she had lived to be my age. And at the point I was able to know that, it was incredibly funny. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because here it is, this thing that's such a deep, tormenting desire. And then, you know, this fairly small revelation one day in the bathroom. It's like, huh, you want to know what your mother looked like? She's looking right at you.
0: Incredible.
1: And there are some things we cannot explain how we know. We just mm-hmm. know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So for me, that's one of those things. I don't know how I know. I just know.
0: You just know. And that's all that matters, truly. Yeah.
1: And it's, it's enough. It's enough.
0: And, and you would say, I, I would think, based on what you just said, that you like what you see. You like
1: what you see. Mm. I do. I mean, as I women, think. it takes us a while to become more relaxed, -hmm. Our culture offers us impossible standards and then encourages us to be neurotic about the fact that we feel we don't meet them. Right. So, one of the great gifts of age is for me, certainly, I'm just more relaxed about things now. So, being able to like what I see isn't really about what I'm seeing with my eyes, it's about the energy I hold inside myself Mm -hmm. and that's what I'm seeing
0: right and I'm in my 40s (sighs) and I had this realization when I was maybe 38 or 39 I had I've been cutting my own hair for many years and um, I feel like I've spent most of my life trying not to look like my mother I mean I'm covered in tattoos I've cut my hair in the most bizarre ways, Um, my style has been crazy, and it's been, you know, just an exploration of the self, and I remember one day coming out of the bathroom and saying to my friend, no matter how I cut my hair, I still look like my mother, and it was sort of this realization, like, I've been trying for years not to look like her. And and at the same time, and this is, you know, something I've discussed with some of my friends, my sister and I we don't actually know what our mother and our grandmother would have realistically looked like aging because my mother has smoked since she was 13 mm-hmm. and my my grandmother had a facelift. And Ah, so we both are just learning about aging on our own. We don't have a reference. We don't know. Yes. Hello, dear listener. Unfortunately, in the midst of my conversation and recording with Sasha, just as she was going to share her mother's ritual, the program that I was using decided to upload our conversation. That being said, a bit of the conversation was lost. And though we did retrieve what we could, I did want to let you know that there was a technological hiccup in the midst of this recording. Thank you so much for listening. Let's start with your mother. So her, her ritual was the party. Yes. And okay, She, she and she would
1: She hosted the New Year's Eve party for her entire social circle. And it was an act of love. Mm. And she would go all out. Um, And at a certain point in my life, um, I worked in restaurants. Mm -hmm. And I could feel that it was the part of me that is my mother's daughter Mm -hmm. that was operating in that setting. And in fact, my first restaurant job, I worked as a host. So I was the person greeting people at the door. Right. Um, And the joy that working in restaurants gave me was really about taking care of people, bringing people together together having an experience of wonderful food and wine and community and celebration. So that definitely, that is a big part of my mother's legacy to me. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And hospitality and generosity were important values to her. And she passed that down to me.
0: And it feels like, you know, through the whole story this the I think what I am hearing in this is and what's so remarkable and so beautiful is there was such a limitation around her ability to love with sort of these um with without um limitations and yet She was able to express that, that sort of boundless generosity, that boundless care, that boundless showing up, that boundless love in these parties, you know, having every detail taken care of. So thinking about other people 100%, thinking what would this person appreciate and love and like, and not to mention what she would appreciate, like and love. And that has spilled out and it's not limited, it's not limited just from what I know of you, it's not limited in just throwing a party and, and showing up in those ways, but it spills out in everything you do. That's what I see in you, Sasha. It's
1: Well, to, to paint a more balanced picture, because there are always many sides of everything, right? Right. Um, yes, my mother was an incredible hostess. And there was also the fact that a part of it was ego. Of she course. wasn't a woman, <laughs> she wasn't a woman who had career. So uh-huh. she didn't have you know professional accomplishments. What she mm. had was the fact that she had created a beautiful home. So that right. part of herself she wanted to share with the world. Right. And so it was a way that she could really feel good about herself. Mm-hmm in inviting the world in and saying, look, this is me. This is my life. This is my home. Let me share it with you and also Mm -hmm. receive positive feedback. And all of us need that, right? We all need to be seen and receive positive feedback. And she didn't have that many avenues for it.
0: Right. And that's that her product of her time also, because women were... Housewife yes. during that time. So yes. the home would have been her shining glory. Yes. And and to share that would have been very important. And but I, you're right, seeing it from a balanced place and but also seeing you know how it's how it has translated to you, I think is also important. And you know, because it will never be the same when we when we watch someone else and we pick up those behaviors and those um, characteristics. It's still we turn it into what is right for us. So even though that that part of her is in you, you've also turned it into what is right for you and how you share it and show it. So it will be different, even though it will slightly be the same, right? You will have to get your own at the same time.
1: That's part of the alchemy, huh? Yes, yes. We take all these these influences from the outside, and they inform who we are on the inside. And then we put it back out there in the world with our own unique flavor. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: And that's what makes us us. And that's what makes us also our mother's daughters. Yes. It's fascinating. Oh, Sasha, what an amazing, what an amazing first interview, I must say. (laughs) I am just blown away by your story. Um, I got teary eyed many times, but definitely you know, wanted to maintain my balance through all of it, but your uh, your story is, I cannot wait to share it with others. Um, You have such an elegant way, Sasha, of sharing, and I think the thing I admire the most out of this experience is I really appreciated your lack of resentment and judgment i felt like you have really come to a place of middle ground and that to me feels like such a powerful place to be in such a place of forgiveness
1: in my experience um there's a place after forgiveness and i would call that acceptance so we do huge amounts of work forgiveness occurs organically And after the forgiveness, there's quite a quiet place and it's just acceptance and it's not complicated. And if there's one last thing I would say, um, the piece I didn't get to do with my mum before she died, and there were lots of pieces, but the piece that stands out is Mm -hmm. that in a way, my adoptive mother withheld a certain approval from me and I did the same to her. We didn't meet at an eye level and tell each other, I'm proud of who you are. And it's not that I feel regret because both of us did the best we could. Right. But I'm grateful that at this stage, I have that feeling wholeheartedly. I am proud of who she was.
0: Thank you for sharing that. That is so beautiful to hear. And I think, it's, I think it's important for other women to hear that.
1: And I hope that many other people out there will do a better job of it than I did. <laughs> because that's the point, right? <gasps> That's that is the, point. the point.
0: Progressive revelation,
1: right? <laughs> yes, yes. We all yeah. stand on the shoulders of giants. So exactly. our mistakes have to inform the lives of others. Otherwise, what's it for? What's
0: you know, my for? journey
1: informs your journey and vice versa.
0: Right, right. And I think that that is story. And sharing story is so important. It's it's healing, it's informative, it's provocative. It creates change. And, yes. And that is progressive. And um, I'm so honored to hear your story. I'm so grateful to have met you that I get to unleash this podcast. <laughs> with, with you being the first woman that I interview uh, because it's I'm like whoa this is this is big and um, yeah I, I don't even I don't even know what to say I feel so in the in the most beautiful and profound way emotional because I feel like you're sharing your story and hearing and bearing witness to your story number one and then being able to share it it's we're hitting upon and you're hitting upon so many different aspects with adoption with growing up you know with with british parents with having a a biological mother a korean biological mother and sharing the grief sharing the story and then to be who you are today in the U S Yes, you know, you, you have, you have so many lands and cultures and belief systems to bring to the table. And that is remarkable to put it all together and alchemize that into who you are today. And that is a world citizen, truly a world citizen and a woman of the world. So, Again, Sasha, thank you so much. Um is there anything else that you feel like you would like to share or that's, you know, one you know, anything else that's there?
1: Thank you for inviting me. And it's really been a pleasure and a privilege.
0: Thank you for listening to Rituals of Our Mothers. Again, I'm your host, Amy Jones, and I encourage and invite you to share your story. If you'd like to be interviewed, please direct message me on Instagram at Rituals of Our Mothers, and we'll speak soon.
1: Ciao!